SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to Night TV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, March 27, after Prime Minister Antonio Albanese announced details last week of Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum, reactions in favour or against the proposed vote continued to flow. In your program today, we'll canvas these reactions and the voice timeline. Also coming up, we'll explore Labour's return to government in New South Wales after claiming victory in last weekend's election in Australia's most populous state. On NITV Radio today, we also look at the return of culturally significant artifacts to Tiwi Island's traditional owners as part of a massive repatriation effort of art and artifacts. This story is coming to you after the latest the latest news on NITV Radio, broadcasting this Monday afternoon from Nam on the Kulin Nation. Patron Tungandami Ngaya. I am Patron Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, South Australia becomes the first Australian state to legislate First Nations voice to Parliament. New data released on the impact of gambling on vulnerable communities. And protesters in Israel gather in front of the Prime Minister's residence. South Australia has become the first state in the country to legislate for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The state parliament held a special sitting on Sunday morning to pass the Labour government's bill to establish the voice which will be able to advise government on legislation affecting Aboriginal people. Premier Peter Malinoskas declared it the most powerful show of respect towards Australia's First Nations people. The way we pay our respects first and foremost is not with our words but in our deeds. And there are no more powerful deeds than South Australia becoming the first place in our nation to pass a law enshrining an Indigenous voice to our Parliament. A large crowd had gathered outside the South Australian Parliament to watch the live broadcast of the sitting and cheered as the bill was endorsed. It's a long, long time, long time um, waiting for things to get right in Australia for us in you know Aboriginal people uh, indigenous communities and I just hope this voice goes out to the community 
and uh, to all the grassroots people as well, you know, because that's where all our problems lie. Premier Peter Malinowska has told the crowd he hopes it will serve as an example for a national voice to the federal parliament. Representatives for the South Australian voice will be elected in coming months with the mechanism expected to be running before the end of the year. Experts say a range of social and economic issues caused the Liberal Party's defeat in the New South Wales state election. Labour leader Chris Mintz won and it said that his victory will make him the 47th Premier of Australia's most popular state. Election analyst Professor Andy Marks says Chris Min's agenda resonated with many people, particularly in Western Sydney. It was very much the case that you know Western Sydney was indicative of a bigger shift in the electorate. It's a, it's a much younger region, more culturally diverse, and the issues that it cares about in the voting booth, you know, differ from those that traditional politics speaks to. So you know, you found a government in the coalition that was very focused on big-ticket infrastructure projects struggling to get that narrative to cut through. People in, in, in these regions are more concerned with whether or not uh, those initiatives are actually improving their lives. Federal Climate Minister Chris Bowen says Chris Minns' character also contributed to his victory. Firstly, Chris Minns is you know, a very compelling leader. I believe he has the potential to be one of the great transformative, transforming and transformative Labor premiers of New South Wales in, in the mould of Rand and Carr. And I think the people saw that. They also saw his authenticity. And from his very first day as leader, he took an approach where he wasn't going to take pot shots on cheap issues. He wasn't going to take what many other leaders would see as a you know clear opportunity. He was going to just call it as he saw it. A new study by the Australian Institute of Family Studies and the Australian Gambling Research Centre has found three-quarters of Australians have gambled at least once in the past year, while almost two in five gamble weekly. Almost half of those who gambled were classified as being at some risk of gambling harm, including mental health issues and and unmanageable health debt. When it comes to gambling ads, three-quarters of Australian adults reported seeing or hearing sports or race betting advertisements at least once a week in the past 12 months, and two in five were exposed to those ads four or more times a week. The report also found 53% of Australians support an outright ban on gambling ads across all platforms before 10.30pm, and 47% support a ban across all social media platforms. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland says the report is useful to informing the Parliament's inquiry into online gambling and its impact on those experiencing gambling harm as well as the government's reform in this area. Well, this is a useful piece of research that we've released today from the Australian Institute of Family Studies. I think we should also be mindful that we have on foot a very detailed inquiry into these very issues, including the online environment, the treatment when it comes to vulnerable Australians, particularly children. So we're going to let that inquiry run its course, but I think it is useful to have that evidence base, to have this new research out there that people can digest in a very transparent manner. Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayers is to travel to China tomorrow. He's leading a business delegation that includes mining billionaire Andrew Twiggy Forrest and Treasury Wine Estate's chief executive Tim Ford. He's the second Australian minister to travel to China after Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who last December was the first minister in three years to visit the country.
Trade Minister Don Farrell also held a virtual meeting with his Chinese counterpart last month. Tim Ayers and his delegation will attend the Boao Forum for Asia Dialogue. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is to be the first of Australia's state leaders to visit China since the COVID-19 outbreak. The Premier is scheduled to be is scheduled to visit Beijing as well as Yanzhou and Sichuan provinces with a series of high-level education and trade meetings organised. Mr Andrews says the visit is important for economic reasons. This is not the first trip I've made to China. It won't be, it won't be the last. And uh, it is all about jobs. It's all about exports, goods and services, partnership, and not just products, but a partnership that goes well beyond that. The federal government is facing criticism over its $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese pledged to build 30,000 new social and affordable homes during the federal election. The legislation has failed to attract the supported needs from crossbenchers in the upper house, with the Greens demanding a larger housing budget and provisions for renters. Independent Senator Jackie Lambie says discussions between the parties are ongoing. I really think they need to take this to National Cabinet before anybody gets any money in each state because, seriously, they need to look at um, how much the state is already putting in and make make sure that the state maintains the amount it's already putting in and goes up with the CPI every year. That is a big thing. They've got to lock in the state, so none of that money, when it goes to the states, is siphoned elsewhere, mate. The United States has diffused concerns that Russian President Vladimir Putin was preparing to use nuclear weapons. President Putin announced on Saturday Russia will station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. The announcement was interpreted as a warning to NATO over its military support for Ukraine and escalating a standoff with the West. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, however, was not impressed by the declaration. I can tell you that we've seen nothing that would indicate uh, Mr. Putin is uh, preparing to to use tactical nuclear weapons in any way whatsoever in in, uh, Ukraine. And I can also tell you that we haven't seen anything that would cause us to change our own strategic nuclear deterrent posture. Mr. Kirby also expressed criticism, skepticism at the relationship between Russia and China, saying there clearly are limits to Chinese leader Xi Jinping's support to Moscow. Controversies continue in Israel following the Prime Minister's dismissal of the Defence Minister Yoav Gallant after he criticised the planned overhaul of the judicial system. Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets of Tel Aviv, Israel's largest city, just the night before in what has been called the biggest protest in the history of Israel. Yesterday, Mr. Gallant said the reform was putting the country's security in danger after it sparked weeks of protests. As Minister of Defense of the State of Israel, I state in the clearest way possible that the growing rift in our society is penetrating the army and security agencies. This poses a clear, immediate and tangible threat to the security of the state. But now I declare loudly and publicly, for the sake of Israel's security, for the sake of our sons and daughters, the legislative process must be stopped. Overnight, overnight protesters gathered outside the residence of Mr. Netanyahu in Jerusalem and were dispersed by police using water cannon. United States President, Vice President Kamala Harris has arrived in Ghana, her first stop in a week-long visit through the African continent.
Ms. Harris comes to signal her country's intent to deepen ties with African nations amid global competition over the continent's future. Ghana was among the fastest growing economies in the world before the COVID-19 pandemic and now is struggling with debt and inflation. Kamala Harris was welcomed at Kotoka International Airport where she gave a speech praising Africa's role in shaping the future. I'm very excited about the future of Africa. I'm very excited about the impact of the future of Africa on the rest of the world, including the United States of America. Ms. Harris is expected to meet Ghanaian President Nana Akufo-Addo before flying to Tanzania and then to Zambia. In Victoria, Liberal members of the state parliament are to vote on a motion to expel MP Moira Deeming from the party caucus today. This follows Ms. Deeming speaking at uh, an anti-transgender rights event outside Victorian Parliament on March the 18th. The Melbourne rally was organised by British anti-trans activist Kelly J. Keane Mitchell, who is also known as Posey Parker. The rally was also attended by neo-Nazis who repeatedly performed the Nazi salute. It sparked community outrage and a commitment from the Victorian government to fast-track a ban on the gesture. Opposition leader John Pesuto has accused Ms. Deming of bringing discredit to the party over her association with rally figures with alleged links to extremists and failing to leave the event when neo-Nazis showed up. And to sport, the AFL has started an investigation of allegations Western Bulldogs player Jamara Agohagan suffered racial abuse at the hands of a St Kilda fan. It reportedly occurred during and following St Kilda's 51-point win over the Bulldogs at Dockland Stadium in Melbourne on Saturday night. Both clubs are working with the AFL to identify people involved and have condemned the racist comments. Now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome mostly sunny 32, Perth sunny 26, Adelaide a shower 223, Melbourne rain at times 19 degrees, Hobart possible late shower 18, Albury Wodonga cloudy 20, Canberra showers 23 degrees, Wollongong a shower 227, Sydney also a shower 227 degrees as well, Newcastle showers 29, Brisbane partly cloudy 31, Townsville mostly sunny 31, Keynes similar conditions and 31 degrees, Alice Springs sunny 37, Darwin partly cloudy 33 degrees, and the Torres Strait Islands a partly cloudy day and a top of 30 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I'm Dami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up in your program today, we look at reactions in favour or against the proposed Indigenous Voice to Parliament vote. We also explore Labour's return to government in New South Wales after a historic win in last weekend's state election. We also bring you the story about the return of culturally significant artifacts to Tiwi Island, Island's traditional owners as part of a massive repatriation effort of art and artifacts. First, timeline and reactions to the proposed details of Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. 
visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. For 122 years, Australia's founding document has not recognised Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The path towards constitutional recognitions has recognition has spanned generations, parliaments and political divides. Alex Anifantis reports. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have always led the charge for constitutional recognition in Australia. After proposed changes to recognise First Nations peoples failed at the 1999 referendum, the idea was shelved for eight years. In 2007, then Prime Minister John Howard made it part of his campaign for re-election. If I'm re-elected, I will put to the Australian people within 18 months a referendum to formally recognise Indigenous Australians in our constitution. But it was Labor's Kevin Rudd who won the election. He made this historic statement a year later. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. In 2010, the new Julia Gillard government set up an expert panel on constitutional recognition. Legislation to review support for a referendum passed in 2013 with bipartisan support. Mrs Gillard made a memorable and moving speech. No gesture speaks more deeply to the healing of our nation's fabric than amending our nation's founding charter. So I commend this bill to the House. Still, no referendum was held. A bipartisan meeting with Indigenous leaders in 2015 once again resulted in a pledge for constitutional reform. This time the words came from then Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Uh, I would feel that we had not lived up to our uh, high expectations and we had not quite been our best selves if we weren't able to do this in the next term of Parliament. Two years passed before a historic gathering in the Red Centre, resulting in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It called for the establishment of a First Nations voice, enshrined in the Constitution. The proposal was not endorsed by then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull or his successor Scott Morrison. It would inevitably be seen as a third chamber. I I don't support a third chamber. It's not a third chamber, no, they're no, talking no, about no, this, friend, though. It's a representative it, no, body. No, it really is. And, and you, no, people can that. dress it up any way they like, but I think two chambers is enough. But last year, Labor thundered to power with this key promise by party leader Anthony Albanese. I pay, I pay my, my respect, respect to their, their elders, past, past, present and emerging. And, and on, on behalf, behalf of the Australian Labor Party, party I, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Two months later, the Prime Minister proposed the draft question. Do you support an alteration to the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The government has now announced the wording of the Voice to Parliament referendum question. It will be debated by the Parliament before Australians have their say at the end of the year. Alex Anifantis, SBS News. You're with NITV Radio. Among those moved to tears by the historic referendum event was the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Barney. 24 hours after the details were announced, the Minister sat down with SBS's political editor, Anna Henderson, to discuss the ongoing referendum debate and dispel some of the myths. Linda Barney, thanks for joining SBS and NITV. 
Thank you. It's been a whirlwind 24 hours, a hugely emotional day yesterday. Do you think that pitch has hit the mark with the people who are undecided? I hope it's hit, hit the mark. I mean, this is about two things, uh, recognition and consultation. And I think the question is so straightforward. It's so simple that people will respond very positively to it. We did hear yesterday from the opposition they're demanding your government release the Solicitor General's advice about the final question. They're raising serious concerns about the potential for High Court challenges. Do you need to release this advice and what's your response to that concern? I think Mr Dutton is running out of excuses and that's what this is, an excuse. Uh, This has been a very deeply rigorous process of getting to the question and the amendments to the Constitution. We have taken careful advice from some of the best legal experts in the country. Of course, there will be a six-week process where people can make submissions about these very issues, but the working group and the Cabinet are very confident with the wording that we've got right now. Constitutional recognition as a premise has bipartisan support. Why not ask Australians to support recognition in the Constitution of Australia's First Peoples and separately whether they back the setting up of a voice to Parliament? The question, as it appeared yesterday, uh, is the question that we will advocate goes to the Australian people. Uh, This is not about breaking things up. This is about making sure that there is recognition and consultation in that question. Uh, The uh, referendum is a reality uh, and we are now into uh, the very pointy end of uh, getting the alteration bill into the parliament next week and the alteration bill will reflect Uh, what was released by the working group with the Prime Minister yesterday. Some of the initial commentary from One Nation, for example, big audience in the bush, big chunk of the vote in some regional areas we've seen in the most recent federal election. Pauline Hanson on Sky last night uh, saying that the voice will lead to the closure of beaches and national parks. What can the government do to counter that kind of misinformation? To say it's ridiculous, Uh, it has been... They're making money from this. They're they're, they're fundraising on the back of this. Well, that's uh, mischievous, to put it mildly. Uh, This is not about property rights. Uh, This is absolutely about uh, changing the the dial on the outcomes, the social justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It has got nothing to do with the sorts of things that uh, One Nation is advocating. Linda Burney, you've been very generous with your time and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And that was Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney talking to SBS's political editor Anna Henderson. Coming up next, Labour's victory in New South Wales state election uh, over the weekend. But first, some spoken word in Jandai language. Son of mine, 
a poem by uh, Ujiru Nonakal, and it's recited here in language by her granddaughter, actor Kalina Edwards. <laughs> Najaba naring intabaduku milmil nimbi najapati. Ban nga kalimu kurong moyenda. Intapa kurong moyen numbai marumba. Mina naja yalwa inta naring najiba. Naja yalwa inta kudna kamarin nga milbong. Naja yalwa inta wadli maranya dungama malara mara. Pakalinya nga balunya nga maranya watli korumba. Pakali jimjim nga balunya naring ngajaba. Ngaja yalwa malara nabukaya banta nga marumba. Wanji milbu milbu guri nga dakai nadu. Nga malara nyinudu ngapang ngapang ngadu. Tunga naja yalwa inta naring ngajaba. Well, Labour has completed what's known as a clean sweep of politics across mainland Australia with the New South Wales state election result. This leaves Tasmania as the only Australian jurisdiction without a Labour government in power. The result also ends a 12-year period in opposition for New South Wales Labour. Deborah Grog reports. As voting in the New South Wales election drew to a close, independent MP Alex Greenwich pondered his potential future as a kingmaker in state politics. If we are in a minority government situation, the most important role for the crossbench is to provide stability to the next government. Uh, That means we've got to look at a number of factors. Who has the most seats? Was there a mood for change? And importantly, who is the best vision for our state? As it turns out, his services may not be needed. Needing to win at least nine seats to claim victory, the New South Wales ALP has won the minimum 47 seats required to form government. Votes are still being counted to determine whether Labor will rule as a majority or minority government. Analysts are forecasting the party could win as many as 50 seats in the lower house. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, cut short his attendance at the football in Sydney to introduce state Labor leader Chris Minns at the victory party on Saturday night as the state's incoming 47th Premier. The people of New South Wales have come together to choose a better future. Tonight, a fresh start for New South Wales begins. And it starts with a great leader. The Labor Party has only formed government in New South Wales from opposition twice since World War II. In 1976 under Neville Rann and 1995 led by Bob Carr. Chris Minns says Labor intends to make the most of their return. Friends, the people of New South Wales voted to put in a government that would put people, people at the heart of all decision making. And we will not let them down. The incoming Premier has described the election campaign as a model for future votes. I think it's undeniably the case that this election campaign, perhaps uniquely, was 
a model of respect and civility. And neither party took the low road, neither political party took the low blow. And I think it can be a model for the way democracy is done right across this country. Now, I can't say, I can't say that every election campaign in the future will be conducted the same way, but from now on, no one will be able to say that it can't be. Labor has now completed what's known as a clean sweep of state and federal politics across mainland Australia with the ALP's success in New South Wales. The only remaining Liberal government is in Tasmania under Jeremy Rockliffe. Attending the coalition's function at Sydney's Hilton Hotel, former Prime Minister John Howard has refused to be drawn on what Labor's new dominance might mean for the coalition. He's told reporters that reckoning was for others to consider. It's too early. All I want to say is that um, I am not here to make pronouncements on behalf of the Liberal Party. That is for the Premier. But I admire him enormously. He took over in incredibly difficult circumstances and he campaigned in an heroic fashion. Coalition MPs and ministers have also told reporters it was also going to be an uphill battle to return to office for a fourth time in a cost-of-living crisis. But outgoing Premier Dominic Perrottet has told the party faithful the coalition leaves New South Wales a more confident and successful state. He says he respects the outcome of the election. The great people of New South Wales tonight have decided to uh, elect a Labor government in this state uh, and that is a decision uh, that we respect. Uh, Elections uh, can get ugly uh, but I believe this election truly uh, was a race to the top. A genuine battle of ideas, and that's when politics is at its best. Dominic Perrottet has also confirmed he is stepping down as Liberal leader, leaving the door open for former Treasurer Matt Keane, who has been widely expected to challenge for the party's top job. Mr Keane has refused to confirm he's considering a run, saying it's still too early to say. Deborah Grook... SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. Now, a wooden lizard is being returned to the lands it was created on as part of a massive repatriation effort of art and artefacts. After more than 50 years in a private collection in regional Victoria, the artifact created on the Tiwi Islands, north of Darwin, has been packed up and sent back to the tropics. Leticia Lemke reports. In the industrial area on the outskirts of Darwin is the Tiwi Land Council's headquarters. The unassuming flat-roofed building has become a processing house and storage facility for more than 250 artworks and artefacts being repatriated to different Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. Tiwi Land Council Chairman Gibson Farmer Ilortamani is standing at the edge of the boardroom table in a room lined with spears, woven baskets and paintings. In his white-gloved hands, he's turning over a long wooden carving that looks to be of a prehistoric creature. It's a frilled-necked lizard in full flight, a carving created on the homelands of Paru on the Tiwi Islands by his grandfather, I was having a look at them, unpacking everything. And I seen some stuff there, belonged to my grandfather. I was amazed how he was an artist, how you put that lizard together. 
He explains this style of carving is vastly different to what artists are creating today. The arms and legs have been formed separately, brought together with a sticky bush resin. Standing on its back legs, face angled to the sky, the 40-centimetre-long artwork appears ready to run. At Peru, we should sit down and watch those people do it. And they never rush. They take their time. But they use special glue from the bush. It's been really done out really hard. Used to use material from the bush in the jungle. Mr Illotamani has clear memories of his grandfather making these carvings and then selling them at the nearby mission. Preserved in this collection is an ornately decorated cockatoo, a bandicoot and a frilled neck lizard, all created by his grandfather, Jack Illotamani. The returned works have outlasted the community they were created in. Gibson farmer Illotamani says the once thriving community of Paru on the shores of Melville Island has now dwindled to just a few permanent residents. As you go back to the rightful people because, you know, the ones over on my left, they're from Paru. And no one lives at Paru. We need to put it somewhere where we so my family can have a look. Especially them kids that go to school. They haven't seen this artifact in a lifetime. The frilled neck lizard is part of a private collection of more than 250 pieces that was being kept in the small town of Creswick just outside Ballarat in regional Victoria. Its owner, John Morris, bought the items during the 1960s and 70s while working as a lay missionary and then a government welfare officer on the islands. Detailed logbooks he kept at the time show he bought the works legitimately and for modest fees, reflective of the time. He realised as soon as he got there that there was an enormous art inheritance on the part of the Tiwi, that people were still producing art, but that times were changing, that uh, there was a evolution from the transitional period into a more modern era, and this was having an impact on the way that art was being created. Speaking there is historian Peter Forrest, who has maintained a close working connection with John Morris over many years. Mr Forrest and his wife Sheila travelled to Ballarat to help get this collection back to the Tiwi Islands. Everything in the collection tells a story of earlier times. There are fishing nets of great fineness and quality made out of uh, traditional materials. There are all sorts of things which uh, speak of the way things were. Collector John Morris declined to provide comment to SBS News, but Peter Forrest says settling this collection was something he had long wanted to do. He realised that uh, if he, when he died, the collection might be in some peril of being sold up and dispersed. And he didn't want that to happen. And so he began these overtures with the Land Council to give all of those materials back. And it was a very uh, noble and uh, generous action on his part. Tiwi Land Council Chairman Gibson Farmer Ilotamani agrees. We need to restore that history. You know, what happened in the past, we need to bring it back.
important thing about the artifact is it's good they came back home, come back with the right people, and we've got to sort out that it goes back to the Tiwi Island. While the boxes have made it to the Tiwi Land Council headquarters in Darwin, the repatriation process is far from over. The collection is significant, stretching the small land council's limited resources. Along with artefacts and artworks are dozens of documents detailing the ceremonies and sacred sites of the Tiwi people. Meticulously cataloguing, recording and preserving the works is the Tiwi Land Council's senior anthropologist, Helen Haritos. Every time we've took something out of the box, we'd call him in to have a look. And it was just like um, opening a magic box, I think. It was just incredible um, for Gibson as well as us. Of Greek-Australian heritage, Miss Haritos was surprised to find her own family reflected in the art collection. Her father was a renowned crocodile hunter in the Northern Territory, a legacy that lives on in the large saltwater crocodile she inherited when he passed away. It's a deadly pet that she still cares for today in the backyard of her suburban home. At the time these artworks were being made in the 1960s, her father had a number of Tiwi Island employees working on his boats. The artist behind the small carved frilled neck lizard that's now being returned was one of those men, with the information labels attached to some of his later works showing he'd adopted the Haritos surname. I think I'm extremely privileged to have the opportunity to work with these artefacts. Um, some of the artefacts I've, you know, I've never seen the likes of it before. It's just amazing. The main thing is for me to get to the boxes that the artefacts are stored in to unwrap them in their current wrapping and put them in appropriate glassine paper, particularly the paintings. Ochre doesn't rub, up, rub off on this particular paper. Francesca Cabillo is the Executive Director of First Nations Arts and Culture from the Australian Council of the Arts and has spent 30 years working across the art and repatriation space. She says gifts like this one are a rarity, but the activism of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has improved the general understanding that these important objects come from a living culture. These objects are important and come from a living culture and therefore to give back, even though you may have purchased it um, and have ethical engagement, is, is a great gift back to the community and one that should be encouraged from all researchers and ethnographers. She says while the federal government has shown a strong focus on repatriation nationally, there isn't the level of funding needed to support this kind of work in remote communities. And I think that's where the government really does need to think more thoroughly in terms of repatriation. When they are gifted back to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, where will they be stored? Do those communities have the facilities in place for safekeeping and for their future generations? Tiwi Land Council Policy Officer Helen Day has been showing photographs of the artworks to clan groups on the Tiwi Islands and says the response has been an emotional one as families reconnect with the people and traditions behind the works.
It just is a reminder that culture is never lost, you know, the past is always there to remind us and, you know, I think that gives people, I think Tiwi people, as you know, they're a very proud people, so, you know, I think all of this artwork is, you know, just reinforces that Tiwi pride in what we have in our culture and our heritage. Until facilities can be built and upgraded on the islands, the artworks will stay in Darwin. But Ms Day is confident the carved frilled neck lizard will not just attract funds for a museum, but also federal investment to restore the community this work was created in. You know, it is, a, I suppose, an auspicious omen that, you know, good things are ahead for, you know, that community to once again, you know, I think have the potential to be even a hub or epicentre of rebirthing the next generation of Tiwi culture, but also a return to country. Letitia Lemke, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And that's all for your programme this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungendamingea. I am Patron Tungandame, thanking you for staying with us uh, today. I hope you enjoy the program. Till next time, bye for now. Yalup.